Back in 1998, a movie came out that became one of those movies of every decade or so that had real impact on our culture and in our society. I remember Sydney and I going to see the movie, and as we went into the theater and sat down, we began to watch the movie Saving Private Ryan. And as we were watching it, the movie ended, and we got up to go, and there was a man at the end of the row where we were sitting, and it was just evident he was of the age of a World War II veteran, and I'm not sure what was going on in his life, but he sat there just stunned and didn't move for the longest time. Even as Cindy and I went by him and worked our way through the aisle, he just sat there. And I wondered, what what was going on in his mind? What was he thinking? What was he remembering? The movie itself is about the theme of this morning. And Fred was supposed to bring communion, and he is sick this morning. So he called and said, Keith, would I do it? And I thought, that's great. We'll just use that sense of remembrance as the theme all the way through. Because that's what the movie Private, Saving Private Ryan is all about. If you remember the movie, and for some it's too gory, and you know there's some crudeness in it, and I understand that, and I'm not necessarily recommending that you see it, but you probably know the story. It begins with a man walking through a graveyard, obviously a veteran's memorial grave site, and he stops at a particular grave. And you see him thoughtful, contemplating. And as he's standing there, the camera comes in and does a close-up of his face. And then the face begins to morph. And suddenly, it's the face, not of Private Ryan, but of Captain Miller and his men as they are on the landing craft, making their way into the Normandy beach. And actually, the movie is not so much about Private Ryan as it is about this squad of men who are called upon to find the last son of a grieving mother whose other sons had been killed in the war, and there sent out this squad, Captain Miller and his men, to find Private Ryan, to save him, and to bring him home. You know the movie. All but, I think, one of the men are killed in that process. And at the end of the movie, there's this interaction And every time I see it, I don't think about World War II. I think about the very thing that we were about this morning. See if you remember this scene. What, sir?
They wanted to come with me. To be honest with you, I, I wasn't sure how I'd feel coming back here. Every day, I think about what you said to me that day on the bridge. I tried to live my life the best I could. I hope that was enough. I hope that at least in your eyes, I've earned what all of you have done for me. As we work our way through the passage this morning, I want you to keep in mind the impact, the the words, the emotions that are wrapped around that final scene. As we look at the passage this morning, remember some of those phrases. I think about it Every day, what you said to me on that bridge. Think about the sentiment, the the impact of saying that I want to live a life that earned it. Now, I understand that there's a bit of a theological struggle with that clip. In fact, there's a bit of a struggle with those words, earn it. Now, you can't develop long phrases. A man's dying. You've got to kind of shorten it down. And so they shortened it down to earn it. But he wasn't earning it. It's not something he did and then got paid for it. Actually, the idea behind that is don't squander this. Honor the sacrifice that was made for you as these men gave of their lives, as these men made the ultimate sacrifice in order that you might live. And live in a way that demonstrates that. Now, that would be too long for dying words. And so it becomes earn it. But that idea, that idea of not squandering, that idea of honoring the sacrifice that was made for you, that gave to Private Ryan, what, 20, 30, 40, 50 years? But as we begin to think about it, and obviously the context is that of Christ and his sacrifice and his death, and not only that, the willingness to give up heaven, to take on the form of a man, to become the God-man, to live and to die for you and for us. We are called upon to honor that. An eternal life. Not 40 years, but forever. How do we live that out? How do we experience? 
experience that each day? Do we each day, each time we take communion, each moment during the day, think in terms of how do I live out honoring that sacrifice that was made for me? Now, the passage we're coming to here in 2 Corinthians, and if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn there. It's 2 Corinthians and chapter 5. Paul is continuing that theme. He, he began by being thrilled about the fact that Titus came with the, the good report about the church at Corinth. And then he began this praise section. In verse 14 of chapter 2, he began by saying, But thanks be to God. And like he often does in his epistles, Paul begins with sort of this introduction, and then he lays out what he's thankful for. And what he's thankful for is this incredible ministry that he talks about there in chapter 2, verse 16. And he says, Who is equal for this task, this amazing job that God has given me, to pour my life out for you, Corinth? And he's developed that theme. He's developed that idea of this incredible ministry, this incredible opportunity to use his life as a representation of Christ, to use his life as the one that God uses and speaks through to have impact in the lives of others. And though specifically he's talking about his apostolic ministry, in the sense of a general application, he's talking to all of us who know Jesus Christ as our personal Savior and are given the opportunity to be his representatives, to represent his glory, to demonstrate his presence in the world. And Paul has been developing that theme, and he is again back to it, and he's going to talk about some of that motivation, some of what keeps him going in the midst of the difficulties of living a life that seeks to demonstrate Christ, in the midst of the difficulties of ministering to others in the name of Christ, in the midst of the sacrifice and hardship that it might bring. And so he comes here, and in verse 11, from verses 11 down to verse 15, he talks again what motivates him, what keeps him going. Basically, the idea is this. Out of fear of God, or our fear of God, motivates us to love like Jesus. Now, in our Western, Occidental, modern culture, we don't like the idea of the fear of God. We like a loving God. We like a kind God. We like a merciful God. And he is all of those things. And there is that sense of God is our father and Jesus who chooses us to be a friend of his. And those are all true. But also in scripture, there is the concept of the fear of God. And it's used in a number of different ways. The way that it is used here is similar to the way that it is found in the book of Proverbs. And it is that fear that motivates us, that that gets us going, that keeps us in that direction. Now, what is that fear? 
Is it the fear of punishment? Is it the fear of this big God out to crush me? What is it? Well, it's like Proverbs. Where the writer of Proverbs, Solomon, says this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That kind of fear, that kind of understanding is where wisdom, and wisdom in the Old Testament is the idea of knowing how to live well in a way that is pleasing to God. Where does that begin? It begins with the fear of the Lord and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. And not only does he talk about the foundation, but he talks about its impact. For through me, that is through wisdom, your days will be many and your and years will be added to your life if you are wise your wisdom will reward you that's the context in which paul is writing this that idea that the fear of the lord my understanding of who god is motivates me and it And as a result, there is reward for living out that fear. You remember in in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the very end of verses 10, where he talks about, for we must all appear before the Bema seat, the judgment seat, the place where we give an accounting for the life that we lived. We, We are to appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each man might receive what is due him. For the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. We're going to give an accounting to God. And for that which is done well as believers, there is reward. That which is done in wisdom. And then in that context, he says this. Since, looking back to what just was written, then we know what it is to fear the Lord. Now, let's talk about that fear just a moment. This fear is not the sense of the overwhelming awe that we get in the holiness of, before the holiness of God. Remember Isaiah chapter 6? In the year that King Uzziah died, and Isaiah is brought before the very throne room of God, and he beholds God and the cherubim singing back and forth, holy, 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 and the, and the, the, the train of his glory fills the temple. And all of a sudden, Isaiah cries out, I am undone. That was terror. In the face of the holiness of God, the awesomeness of God, the otherness of God, the the overwhelming nature of God, that, that man cannot fully experience his glory for it would just undo us. It's the same as you see in Revelation chapter 1 where Christ comes and no longer does his flesh hide his glory, but now his glory is fully seen even though he is still in human form. And John, the one that Jesus loved, the beloved disciple, beholds Jesus in all of his glory, in all of his awesomeness, in all of his wonder, in all of his holiness. And John doesn't go... Hey, Jesus, good to see you. He falls flat 
on his face, overwhelmed by the glory and holiness of God. That's not this. We should have that. We should understand that. We should understand when we come and we begin our prayers, Father, we're speaking of the creator of the universe, the total other, the the one who is fully holy. But that's not what he's talking about here. This is not the fear of condemnation. This is not a, 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 a contradiction to Romans chapter 8 and verse 1 where Paul declares, there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. It's not talking about that fear of eternal judgment, that that fear of eternal separation that comes as I stand before God in all of my sinfulness apart from the forgiveness of Christ. That's not what this is talking about. I should fear that. If I don't know Christ as my Savior, if my sins are not forgiven, I stand before God condemned to eternal separation. That's not this. This is not the fear of relational separation, that somehow I will be separated from God. In fact, just the opposite for us, because God's word clearly declares to us that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. That's not the kind of fear that believers have, that those that know Jesus as their Savior have. This is the kind of fear of saving Private Ryan. The fear of squandering what was given to me. The fear of dishonoring the sacrifice that was made. It's in the context of giving an account for the way that I have lived my life. And Paul says... You know, out of a fear of disappointing God, out of a fear of dishonoring that sacrifice, out of a fear of giving a poor accounting of the life that Jesus has given to me, I live in a certain way. This fear is the awareness that we are accountable to God, that I will give an accounting, not to be condemned, not to be Punished. That was all laid on Christ. I will stand before Jesus and Jesus will say, you know that life I gave you? How'd you use it? And when we respond and say, I used it to serve you in this way, in this way, in this way, Jesus will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Come. Share in my glory for that. If we've squandered it, it's just wasted. It is the fear of disappointing the one who has done so much for us. It is the fear of wasting the life that the Lord has given to us. This is not a fear of guilt. It's a fear of motivation. Do you ever have that teacher in junior high or high school that you really respected and you never wanted to let down? 
I had a few teachers like that, a few teachers like that in college particularly. I just didn't want to let them down. I respected them. I feared them in that sense, that I did what was necessary not only to pass but to get a decent grade, to say I worked hard because I want to honor the sacrifice you made into my life. And it's the fear of the loss of sharing in God's reward. God, I want my life to live and survive and to matter for eternity. That when I close my eyes on this side, I will hear well done on that. That what I do on this side of eternity will count. And again, as I mentioned last week, I think it talks about our responsibilities in heaven and it talks about our proximity to God in eternity. Not whether or not we go to heaven. That's determined by whether or not we have faith in Christ. Paul says, it's that fear that motivates me. That reality that motivates me. That understanding that motivates me. And therefore, I want to persuade men. I want to persuade people of the reality of this incredible gift. Of the reality of this incredible ministry. I want to persuade you that it is worth it. To be involved in the sacrifice that Jesus calls forth in our lives. Now, as you read down through the passage, Paul says that motivation, that fear, that not wanting to let down or dishonor the sacrifice involves the sacrifice of Jesus' love, the love of Christ, what Jesus did for me, the sacrifice that he made, just like Private Ryan, I don't want to squander this. I don't want to misuse this. I don't want to dishonor this. That sacrifice, for those men, it was, it was bravery. It was honor. For us, it is the love that Christ has and has shown to us. When somebody loves us that much, we want to do everything we can to please them. And so Paul, as he's continuing to write this, he he talks about the love of Christ and he uses such an interesting word in verse 14. He says, for Christ's love compels us. Actually, the word there is the idea of squeezes us. And the, the, the concept, the image, is like a river. In Louisiana, they built these things called levees. And the idea was to keep the Mississippi within its banks in order that it wouldn't just meander anywhere and that it would stay focused in a particular direction. It had its benefits and it had its problems. But the idea is, I want to be directed like that. I want to be compelled like that. I want to be motioned and, 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 and directed in a way that moves me, in the way that those banks force me to move, the way that Jesus' love compels me to move. I want to live a life like that. And so he goes on and he talks about that love of Christ. He says, for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all. 
and therefore all died. Now, the love that it's talking about is not my love for Christ, but his love for me. And this is a passage that those who enjoy theology can get really wrapped up in where it talks about Christ died for all and therefore all died. And what's he talking about? Well, let's just talk about the context. For those of you who are theological wonks, the focus of this passage is not the motivation of Christ, nor, I mean, sorry, the focus of this passage is the motivation of Christ, not the extent of the atonement. He's not talking about limited or unlimited atonement for those of you that enjoy these things. You know, I tend to believe, when I think theologically, I believe that the atonement, the death of Christ, is unlimited in its sufficiency. It was enough for the sins of all the world, of all of creation. But it is limited in its efficaciousness, in its effect. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. The context is not theological. The context is motivation. And what he's simply saying here is, look at what Jesus did. He died for us. The only person in all of creation that didn't die for his own sins. He died for me. He died for you. He died that you might first die with him in order that you might live with him. That's what the context of this passage is. Now, those of you who love, you know, uh, systematic theology, sometimes it's taken in other ways. But he says there, for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one, that is Jesus, died for us, for all of us, in order that we might die with him. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves. We're to live like Jesus lived. The death we die with Christ is spiritual and not physical. I will still die physically unless the Lord returns. But this is a spiritual death. We die to the condemnation that comes from sin. Jesus died to sin because he paid for all of our sins. We die to the condemnation of sin. There is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. There is no way in which God will judge us eternally because of our sin, because of what Christ did. We died with him. We die to the power of sin to enslave us. We were once slaves to sin. It said jump, we jumped. In fact, we said how high, how far. But because of the presence of the Holy Spirit within our lives, we are no longer slaves to sin. We can be empowered by the Spirit and make the choice to use our lives to live to God's glory, not to live in rebellion. And we die in order that our new lives might be lived for him. Paul takes the same theological idea. And in 1 Corinthians, he said it, I mean, sorry, in Romans, he said it a little bit differently. He said, now if we died with Christ, 
we believe that we also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. That's the idea that's found in 2 Corinthians. But we ain't just dead in Christ. We're alive in him. And in that same way that Jesus is alive to God, we are to count ourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Paul says that the fear of God motivates me. What does it motivate me to? What is, it, what is the way that we take that death that Christ paid, that sacrifice he made, and how do we avoid squandering it? How do we honor his sacrifice? We do it this way, by living in ways that are pleasing to God. Why do I spend time in God's word? Why do I spend time coming on a Sunday morning? Why do I spend time going to Bible study? Why do I spend time doing all those things? Because I want to know what it's like to live a life that pleases him. Somebody that's sacrificed so much for me, I want to honor it. And I want to know what it means to live in a way that Christ would have lived. So I, I take this, this, this word, this revelation. I take the life of Jesus as it's revealed here, and I seek to demonstrate it in my life. You see, one died for all. All died in him in order that we might live for God. But I've got some bad news. Not everyone's going to like the way you live when you live to please the Lord. Some may find it offensive. Some may find it irritating. Not everyone's going to like the way you choose to serve the Lord. Now, it's important that we do so in a way that is pleasing to God, but it may not always be pleasing to others. And that's the whole context of what Paul is dealing with. Some don't like Paul. They're irritated with him. They're, in a sense, sick of him. They're condemning Paul and putting him down and building paper on him and finding any way they can to to put him down. And Paul isn't concerned because of his own reputation, but he's concerned that if they reject him, they will reject his message, and that's what was going on. And so Paul wants to make it very, very clear. Since we can't please all, out of a fear of God and a desire to love like he loved. We seek always to please him. Now in the context, understand something. Paul is aware that some dislike his ministry style, particularly his preaching. Anyone who's ever preached, there's always those that just don't like it. For Paul, it got serious. 
They were attacking him. They were condemning him. They were saying, Paul, I just get so tired of hearing him preach. Yeah, he can write letters, but man, when he comes to teach, it's just terrible. And you need to understand a little bit of the rhetoric of the time. You need to understand a little bit of the culture. There were a couple of people that would go around and they would come into cities and they were sort of the city entertainment. They were the the philosophers and the sophists. And they would go around or they would live in a city and they were the, the city's entertainment. Their preaching style, their, their, their public discourse was just amazing. And eventually, at first, they were doing that in order to bring forth truth and to bring forth understanding. But eventually it got to the point where they were more interested in the entertainment than they were in the truth. Paul wasn't very good at it. Not only wasn't he very good at it, Paul chose not to be like the sophists. One of the big thing about the sophists was you had to let people know just how great you were. That was part of the entertainment. You had to use manipulative methods to to get people to respond. And he uses that word persuasion. That was the primary goal, was to get people to move. Didn't matter whether it was true. Didn't matter whether it was honest. Didn't matter what manipulation you might have used. You just wanted to persuade them. Paul says, that's not my chief concern. In fact, Paul is aware that some are more elegant and polished and and when, not, apart from manipulation, some are better than others. Sure, that's not a problem. So much so that Paul actually quotes their attacks of him in this, in this letter. He's saying, I know I'm not as good a preacher as you wish I was. He says in 2 Corinthians 10.10, 10, for some say his letters are weighty. Oh, he's a good writer. But man, he just can't speak his way out of a paper bag. That's my translation. He does them very impressive. I don't know about you, but I think I'd love to sit under Paul for a while. Whether he was boring or not. Listen, when Paul preached, a guy fell asleep, fell out of the window and died. So Paul responds to them with a rhetorical response out of rhetoric. And there's that passage, that verse in verse 13, right in the middle, where he says, if we are out of our minds, it is for the sake of God. If we are in our right minds, it is for you. And some say, what the heck is Paul talking about? Now, what's clear is his motivation is God and others. But what does he mean by if we're out of our mind or if we're in our right mind? Well, in the context of rhetoric... Those that were doing very, very well, those that were the the best, the most entertaining, the most precise, they were known as those in their right mind. Those that you couldn't follow, those that put you to sleep, they were known as those not in their right mind. That's what he's talking about here. One, One translator translated it this way. I thought it was great. If, as some of you complain, my speech was unpolished and excessive, then credit it to God. You know, I'm trying to please God, and it's just not doing it right, and all right. And if I'm presumably reasonable in my right mind, as the rhetorics would say, credit that to your account for your sake. Because in all of it, God's love compels me. 
When you read the passage, the whole focus of the passage is we minister out of our love for Christ and a desire to always do what is best for others. Sometimes it's disliked. Sometimes it's appreciated. But in all of it, we seek to please God. You see, Paul says commendation comes from speaking the truth in a pure heart, not in how polished we are. Some of you, I often will hear, you'll be asked to, well, could you teach this, or would you teach this children's thing, or would you teach us? And and we'll often hear, and, and I understand, I don't just think I'm qualified. Usually what that means is I'm not polished enough, or I'm not fancy enough, or... Sure you are. You can speak the truth with a pure heart. You can share with your neighbors, even if you don't have the theological degree, and have all the proper arguments. Paul says what God commends at that time when we give account is the rightness of our message and the purity of our heart. That's what 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 17, all the way through, through chapter 5, actually should be verse 15, is about. That what is important is my heart. That what is important is the truth. And God can use you. And then finally, the goal is first to please God whether or not it pleases others. There have been times out of my love for my children that I've had to say, no. There have been times out of my love for my children and my desire to see what is best in their life and my desire to want to be faithful to God that I had to say, here are the consequences. Do you know what? They didn't like it. But my first goal was to please God. We begin by saying there was an amazing sacrifice made for you. Don't squander it. Live in a way that honors that sacrifice. Be aware that we are going to give an account of how we've used this life that Jesus purchased through that sacrifice. But what makes us faithful is when we choose to live like Christ loved. To live that way will not please all, but it will please our Father. And he will be glorified. And his purposes will be accomplished. And our lives will not be squandered. Father, thank you for what we read in Scripture and for the motivation that is there before us. May we be those who truly live out the sacrifice. May we be those that take seriously the incredible gift that was given to us. Help us to not in any way to squander that, but to be faithful, not just with the knowledge that we will give in accounting, but with a desire to love you for the ways that you have loved us. 
And we ask it in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.